Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond number. This is episode number 620 for December 30th, 2019. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Eleanor Mazzarella. Now, before I let you meet her, I want to give you the setup. When Steve and I went on the SpaceX tour that we told you about, it was part of a Women Who Code event. The format was kind of unusual. The room was filled with women and men, all with an interest in coding. Many of the people were there as mentors. Liz Crane, who ran the event, had all of the mentors come up to the mic one by one, and they simply gave a one or two sentence long explanation of their knowledge. After all of the mentors were done speaking, she simply said, go. And, and it was it was crazy. Everyone in the room just started milling around, moving to speak to the people they thought would be of most interest to them. In the what was uh, I can only describe as enjoyable anarchy, I went directly to Eleanor Mazzarella because she said she was a musician turned programmer. As I suspected, her story was as fascinating as I hoped, so I asked her to be on the, uh, this week's guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond. With that long introduction, welcome to the show, Eleanor. Thanks, Allison. Happy to be here. All right, so let's start with what you were wearing to the Women Who Code event. You had a very <laughs> weird shirt on, and I think the No Castaways will get a big kick out of it. Yeah, so I was wearing a shirt that has a pattern that is called Hyperface. Um, so what this is, it kind of, you, at a distance, it sort of looks like a bunch of pixelated skulls. But what it really is, is a design that was created by an artist that so closely mimics the pattern that facial recognition cameras use to index faces that uh, when this pattern is repeated sufficiently at number of sizes in the density that is to the, you know, just the space of a t-shirt, it can have the effect of crashing facial recognition cameras. And it's when so I, awesome. <laughs> I know when one of my InfoSec friends told me about it, I just thought that is too cool. It's, you know, right in my wheelhouse of the intersection of art and technology. And the idea of a sort of small level of kind of defiance against facial recognition just sounded way too fun to me. So I immediately went out and ordered one for myself when I heard about it. And I like to wear them in, in public places where you, you may or may not be having your face indexed on a camera like that. So I thought it'd be fun to wear to the event. I think uh, we can pretty much say we're always having our face recognized these days, right? Right. Well, I know a lot of no silicastaways would get a big kick out of this. All right. So I want to get into the real story, but I'm going to tell you something that the rest of the audience knows. Um, I don't listen to music at all. I have, uh, I believe I have a syndrome they call music specific anhedonia, where music simply doesn't give me joy the way it does. It doesn't evoke emotions like it does in other people. And something like between two and 5% of the world population they think has this. So um, that's just as a setup. And the other thing is, in spite of that, my family's very musical. My brother was the director of the Berkeley School of Music, um, the the uh, digital synthesis program there. So <laughs> with that, very it, cool. yeah, it'll. It, but I find it fascinating to talk to people in the arts, especially if they can understand my my more technical brain. And you you are the convergence of those two. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> All right, so let's let's start. What, what is your your starting musical background? Sure. So um, I started in music from, I wouldn't say a very young age, but a moderately young age, around fourth grade or so. I was milling about my parents' house and I, I looked on their bookshelf and I found what ended up being a clarinet. 
I didn't know what it was at the time. I, I thought it was some kind of weird, like nautical equipment or something. I had no <laughs> idea what it was. Uh, and I, I asked my parents, what is this? It smells like grape. The cork grease in it was a grape scented uh, oh, cork funny. grease. And, and my dad told me it was his old clarinet and that he used to play. And uh, I was already sort of a, a competitive kid at that age. And I thought, oh, my dad used to play clarinet. He can give me a big leg up and I can, I can be really good at the clarinet early on. And uh, he knew a little bit and he showed me what he knew, but I started playing for fun. And when I discovered that you could uh, play music from the movies like Star Wars on the clarinet by yourself, that kind of blew my mind. it, It never occurred to me that you could take music from somewhere else and recreate it on your own for your own enjoyment, however you liked. I, so, I like the fact that it's Star Wars that was what you wanted to redo, right? It wasn't, uh, you know, a princess movie or something. Well, it sort of is, actually. I mean, there was actually, to be fair, there there was music that was pretty decent from, uh, let me think, uh, Beauty and the Beast actually had some pretty good music oh, as yeah. well. But it it wasn't necessarily the princessy aspect of any of these movies that drew me. It was It was always the music that I thought, wow, that it's such a big part of the story and I can... I can have it here in my hands right now and then make it on my own. Just sort of fe- felt like magic to me. Yeah. Um, By the way, I do get that part. If there's a visual component to go along with the music, then I do feel it, mm-hmm. which I think is also interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I do appreciate yeah, that, in that music- when the music fits with what it is you're seeing. One really interesting kind of technical way to talk about that is, uh, there's this idea of a leitmotif, which is a music that's assigned to a person or an idea. And so when you when you kind of break it down in that way, you can think, well, I'm really playing Yoda's music right now, or I'm playing the piece of music that represents this part of the story that's just my favorite part of the story. And so you really can kind of um, feel like you're, you're having a piece of the story when you play the music. But uh, oh. yeah, so so I uh, I joined the band and I I practiced a lot and I I really enjoyed kind of both the competitive aspect and also the artistic aspects of, of doing music. And um, I played throughout middle school and started doing competitive orchestras and joining after school programs. Um, Eventually at some point I realized, wait a second, I can, I can do this after public school. I can do this in college. I could do this for a living. And that I thought was just amazing. It, it sounded like getting to do recess for, for a living. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned competitive orchestras when you're in high school. I don't, I guess I didn't think of an orchestra as being competitive. Absolutely. It's, it's not dissimilar from competitive sports teams. So you do have to audition to participate. And then with that audition, you're also auditioning to see what chair you get and what part you get to play. Okay, so um, you're competing for a position, but the orchestra itself is not a competitive sport? Well, so <laughs> you, you, yeah, some of the orchestras you won't be allowed to participate in unless you pass the audition. Um, no, but so I mean, the, the can, orchestra isn't competing with other orchestras. Oh, uh, at the, you know, it's interesting, at the public school level, that is true. They They would have competitive school bands and orchestras where they would compete for titles like regional titles. Whereas the, whereas the after-school programs were for their own sake and for their own enrichment. And there was no inter-orchestra competition, just sort of your own, you know, competitiveness to, to get this or that part, um, uh, in the orchestra. But, uh, 
Yeah, it was great. I mean, for me, it also provided a community and atmosphere that I wasn't really getting out of my public school at the time. Um, it was really life changing. The first summer I went to a real music camp, I went to Interlock and Arts Camp in Michigan. So did my and brother. That was my... Oh, he did. I yeah, remember I remember picking I... him up there from, from uh, summer. Did he love it? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's really something to take a teenager and surround them with other teenagers who care about the same things they care about, which is so hard to find in a public school setting, or particularly the public school I went to was, it's, if you can think of like an anti-magnet school, there, there, were, there was a magnet school, there was uh, another school that had an AP program, and then there was my school, which everybody seemed to be trying to get out of to go to these other schools. And as a result, it was just the worst, one of the worst performing academic schools. Oh. Um, and it, they, it, they actually lost accreditation as a high school two years after I graduated. And the only way to do that is if enough people fail standardized tests. So that, that should give you a picture of just how bad my public school was. Yeah. So I was, I was really looking for any and every possible outside of school thing to do instead of that, because I, I just didn't really relate to my peers and wanted something that was a little more challenging and, and creatively fulfilling and, and music provided that really nicely for me. Um, so yeah, so I, I um, started on the track of college auditions and uh, I switched teachers one or two times in high school to, to a new clarinet teacher was a better fit and helped me prepare for auditions. And I uh, got accepted to a couple schools and decided to go to the University of Michigan, where I got a Bachelor of Music. Oh, okay. All right. And uh, yeah, let's see. From there, um, I loved Michigan. It was, it was kind of like interlocking, but at the university level, um, really great community of people and teachers and just a really wonderful music school. Um, from there, I went to study at an artist diploma program in Toronto at a school called the Royal Conservatory of Music. It was with this fabulous teacher, Joaquin Valdepenas, um, that I studied in Toronto for two years and just loved my time there. It was, it was just incredible. A great city, great school, great teacher, um, really wonderful time, very enriching. Uh, after that, I decided to, I didn't really have a plan. But I, I knew, you know, I, I knew I couldn't stay in Canada because I, I'm not Canadian. And so I I had to kind of I had to go back to the States unless I had some big job waiting for me in Toronto, which I didn't at the time. And it just so happened that I was uh, dating a guy long distance who lived in Los Angeles. And I, I did one of those things that you I feel like you can only really do in your 20s where you're like, I'm just going to move to Los Angeles to <laughs> <laughs> be with my boyfriend and, and just sort of see how life is there. And uh, so I did, and um, we're we're still very good friends. We ended up parting ways years later, but um, I, I moved down to Los Angeles and started freelancing in LA. Uh, this was about 2009. So I yeah I came to LA and um, started freelancing with a few groups. My network of musicians from Michigan and uh, Toronto helped me out a little bit. I was able to kind of begin what I describe as like my patchwork freelance career, which consisted of uh, freelance orchestra gigs, teaching um, and freelance studio work at the indie movie level. Oh, okay. Um, and I also decided I 
I felt like, oh, well, I'm really good at doing school and the real world is kind of scary. So I thought, okay, I, I don't know, maybe I'll go get a master's or something. And uh, I auditioned at a couple places and decided to get a master's of music at California State University at Fullerton with the fabulous clarinet teacher, Hokan Rosengren, and studied with him for a couple years. Great, great teacher, great program. And uh, it was in the middle of that program that I started to think, huh, I've been doing music for a long time, and I don't really have a lot of non-music hobbies. I mean, occasionally I'll do this or that, but nothing really substantial. And it was around that time, around 2012 or so, that I, I started hearing these news stories about um, iPhone apps. And uh, because I guess it was 2009, that 2008, maybe that the iPhone came out. Is that right? Yeah, right around then. I get, right I get lost. Then. Maybe 2007? Yeah, maybe. I think oh, you're right. Apps, yeah. weren't, apps weren't available. You couldn't do apps for a while after that. That's right. Um, but then I think it was around 2012 or so where apps were definitely a thing and children were making apps. And that was a newsworthy story of, uh, I think there was some kid who made, it was this really silly parody Justin Bieber app. That was something <laughs> like, like it, he was a beaver and you, it was like a whack-a-mole game, something just, just incredibly silly that you would expect a 12 year old to make. But what I didn't expect to hear was that this was, something that made him money. And that that really gave me pause, thinking, wait a second. A kid is making an app for the iPhone. It's really silly. And it's making him money. What's going on here? <laughs> how could this be? What's happening? <laughs> what, like, how, how did this come about? And so, I, I mean, I never actually downloaded the game or anything, but I thought, wow, this is this whole programming thing that I'd only kind of new bits and pieces about, you know, I took a psychology class in college and I remember the teacher there teasing computer science majors. I didn't even know what a computer science major was, but teasing them in the stereotypical way that you'd imagine, of, oh, they're, they're all socially inept and they, you know, things like that, that you, you tend to hear. And so I, I knew wait, so wait. little. I, I, I'm going to peel, pull back the curtain a little bit. Eleanor has worked on an outline for me and her exact words were mouth breathing, socially <laughs> inept, ungroomed men, snidely declaring they began programming at the age of five. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> I, I didn't want to, I mean, you know, oh, no. I, I feel bad. Please be as obnoxious as you can. Here. It's, it's, it's the style. I mean, knowing what I know now, I, I feel but I mean, this is also, I guess it's good to know because this is what people who know nothing about programming think. That this is the stereotype they get and perpetuate. And I don't know if it's been movies or, you know, pop media that, you know, didn't didn't programming used to be cool? And like in the I feel like there was a period of the 80s where you'd have many more women going into computer science and it was this really cool profession. And then somewhere, somewhere around the late 80s, 90s movies made it seem really uncool. I, I don't know, maybe you, you maybe you know yeah. more about this well, media I'm not, phenomenon. Than I, do. I don't know what the, uh, the cause is, but you write about statistically the percentage of uh, women in computer science has dropped by 30% since the 1980s. So something mm-hmm. happened that made it 
sound like mouth breathing. What was your exact? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what the cause is, but they are. We're, it's sort of like when the when the bee population started to drop and we didn't know why. That's what it feels like mm-hmm. here. Still don't. Yeah. Know. But but hang on, hang yeah. on. So you're looking at all this programming stuff and thinking, wow, uh, this looks really cool. But you're a musician. But you you can't go do that. Okay, how could, you, how could you go from music to being a programmer? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I never set out to be a programmer. I I thought, okay, I what I know about the iPhone, what I know about Apple, is that there the interface is approachable, that it's inviting, and that there's no kind of inherent assumption that you you already know how to configure these fussy little settings. It's what you see is what you get, and you it's just sort of an overall friendly interface. And so that was a big part of thinking, huh? You know, if if there are apps for the iPhone, um, I wonder. And literally, children are doing it. How hard could it be? How how impossibly difficult could it be if twelve year old kids can do it? I mean, I, they're I smarter enough. than us. That's why I'm <laughs> I, I I still don't think that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought originally, okay, kids can do this. It's time for me to roll up my sleeve. There's no excuse for me to not take a look at this and try. And my my goal wasn't to be a programmer. My goal was to see all right, if some kid can make an app, I can make an app. And I don't even know what kind of app I want to make. I just want to sit down and kind of play around with stuff. And I thought... I thought making an app was a thing you do like all at once. Like you just kind of, you sit down for an hour and you make an app. Um, and maybe nowadays you can actually do it like that. It's, it's kind of nuts that, you know, website building actually is that nowadays. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the time, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do it all at once. Um, get it out of the way and then pick some other hobby next week. <laughs> and um, and uh, of course, as I quickly learned, there's no, build an app in an hour thing. I mean, I'm sure someone today would would suggest that there is something like that. But at the time, no one was as enterprising enough to, to suggest that you could do that. So I realized, okay, I've got to learn how to program. Okay, gosh, this is going to, this, this might take more than an hour. All I guess right, it'll I take guess. all afternoon, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess if I really, I didn't want to get into the weeds of this, but I'll, I guess I'll sit down and see what it could take and maybe I won't like it. Maybe this is going to be too nitty gritty for me, but I'll, I'll sit down and see. So I, I searched on iTunes university. I'm not sure why I just knew that it was a thing. And I knew that they had courses from really amazing schools and they had one from Stanford and it was the start here kind of programming course. Um, and I still remember the very first lecture, it just it's testimony to how incredible a teacher this was that the very first lecture, he kind of knew what everybody was worried about. And so he had this spiel that was, if you can turn on a computer, you're in the right place. If you know what a font is, you're ahead of the game. Oh, if wow. You, you know, yeah, it, it, he just made it so inviting and so clear that this was the starting point. You did not need to start programming when you were nine. You could start right here and right now and you were in the right class. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I didn't even know I was worried about all of those things, but now I'm not. And now I feel like I this is the right class for me. And uh, that was almost the entire first lecture was him saying like, this is, you're at the right place. We're going to, we're going to start with a few install things and we'll get down to um, the very basics. And nowadays it's really popular to start with the scratch programming language. Oh, um, I th- 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my, my I, I, I'm going to brag about my niece. My ten year old niece showed me at Christmas a uh, a game she wrote in Scratch. So oh. Scratch, to everybody here at scratch.mit.edu. Yeah, it's this really cute little game. It's got a dog that jumps over. You got to jump over bones and you don't want to jump on the donut because then you'll die. So you got to get the bones. Aww. I haven't solved it yet, but it's it's a really good little game. Oh, that's so great. That's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, I was actually going to say that this course was before Scratch really caught on. And so, so it didn't start with Scratch, but it started with, um, I think he gives you a little robot named Carol and uh, he gives you the program and all Carol can do is move forward and turn left. And that's it. And you you get this tiny little API um, and you you have challenges like make Carol go from here to here. And it was it was in the way that Scratch is so bite sized and abstracted out. Uh, it was a great starting point because it it doesn't overwhelm you. And I think that's one of the other risks in learning program is you can feel overwhelmed so quickly by how much there is to know that um, having just a lot of constraints to start small was a great place for me. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I did this course uh, on oh, my own. Another I, advantage of you, of mm-hmm. what you did is you weren't in a room full of uh, mouth breathing. I started programming when I was five <laughs> guys that would, that could potentially, you know, intimidate people. Right. That's absolutely true. Um, yeah, that that's a very good point. I was on my own. I was I I didn't have anyone to tell me I could or couldn't do it. It was just sort of this thing I was exploring on my own, thinking, okay, well, you know, this this course is good. I'll I'll see what I can do. Um, I'll Google confusing parts on my own. And there was yeah, at at this stage, there was never any peer feedback or like judgment. It was just me thinking like, how do we get this robot to go over here? And, you know, when I did, I think I'd get this like rush of joy that I think a lot of programmers get of when you solve that problem and you feel like, wow, you know, you briefly feel so just exhilarated. It, oh, it, it's amazing. I, I always feel like I've made fire. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You, you feel like inordinately powerful and amazing for having done what is ultimately like a really trivial thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. For uh, me, it's something like I managed to change the font size and it took me three and a half weeks or something. Have you noticed that you never stop when it's not working? I'm sorry, when it's Mm -hmm. working, like you never Mm -hmm. stop right after that and say yes. And then get up out of your chair. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. You described like, the font thing later on, uh, when I was, uh, trying to mess with this animation library, all I did was get a square to go to animate across the screen, but I was so excited about it. I had to call in my boyfriend at the time and show him like, look, look, look what I did. (laughs) It really was next to nothing, but that feeling was kind of where the spark started. And that that was kind of the beginning of feeling kind of the same thing with music of like, wow, I have this thing in my hands that I can, that feels so powerful to me. That's so, um, you know, validating and feeling like, I don't know how to describe it, but it just felt like some, some kind of magic that I held in my hands that I could do and repeat. And um, that was the beginning of, of feeling kind of obsessed with learning programming. And huh. so after maybe a few weeks, I, I kind of put the whole, like, I'm going to make an app thing on the back burner, realizing like, oh, well, I'll get there eventually. But right now I'm really enjoying doing these toy projects, mostly because the toy projects are small and consumable and I can finish them. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of feeling like I finished something. 
and this um this was had kind of a snowball effect where it would motivate me to to study before and after work um eventually I, I i don't know what it was or what day it was or what i was doing but i i remember working on the homework and realizing my back hurt and <laughs> then realizing i hadn't moved for 4 hours that i was just sitting in this chair <laughs> for 4 hours and i realized oh no i know what this means this this means that i'm completely absorbed in this work i i want to do it all day and i think that means i need to look for a career doing this because, you know. So yeah. was doing this homework similar to uh, practicing for a concert or anything like that? So uh, yes and no. Um, yes, in the way that you need to dedicate time to learning um, and that you you will uh, reap what you sow. You'll, if you spend the time and energy to learn something, you'll, you'll grow on that in the same way that you do with music. At the time uh, with music, my goal was to get more gigs, but also to get more stable gigs. And um, what I was looking for was a more permanent position in a regional orchestra. And the way you get that are by auditions. And auditions tend to be the same repertoire of music generally between almost every audition like for clarinet it's it's pretty standard you're going to play the mozart clarinet concerto you're going to play a handful of musical excerpts which are solo passages from popular pieces that are tricky or show off certain skill sets so you're going to play this collection of i don't know 8 to 12 different excerpts every single time and by every single time i really do mean every single time you know you're going to audition for the, say, the Kansas City Orchestra. And you'll practice these, you know, pieces, uh, 12 to 25 excerpts of music and the solo piece. You'll practice it for three months and, um, you know, four hours a day and do mock auditions and all sorts of things to prepare you. That sounds for, horrible. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little bit kind of jaded about the experience. So I, I might be painting it a little bit more. Um, <laughs> well, but just the idea so, of doing the same stuff over and over and over again. You know, and in many ways, classical music is, oh, so it is and it isn't. Um, the one beautiful thing about music, uh, among many beautiful things, is that every time you create music, it's never the same because you're playing with new people in a new environment. I mean, the notes and the rhythms, of course, are still the same, but the style and sort of the energy and the tempo and sort of the overall feeling of the piece is new every single time, but oh, okay. within the confines of it being the same notes in the same time <laughs> rhythm. <laughs> so it, within a very like specifically strict set of constraints. Um, so it's, it, it is similar and it's not similar. Um, but when you're doing programming, you're, you would never program the same thing a second time. You might say, Hey, I need a piece of that code and I can add it to this other code. And now I've made something new. You don't get to pick, like, take some Chopin, some some Beethoven, and mash it up and make something new very often. That's correct. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you you kind of have to redefine new, and in, in terms of what you're looking for. And I, I mean, there have been many just really incredible moments of my musical career where you have a certain kind of chemistry and energy with a group of people, and it's almost kind of like a little bit of a mind melt when you're playing together and you're really deeply listening to each other and sort of playing off of the 
kind of nuances that each other is creating. And, and hmm. it, it's just kind of on a smaller level, I would say. Okay. Um, and, uh, but yeah, but you're absolutely right with programming. It's very different. I mean, with, with classical music, sometimes you can feel like you're going for five shades of green and you feel like, <laughs> okay, this is all right. That's a little different. That's, that's a little, little different. Whereas with writing new programs, you know, your imagination is the limit of, of what you want to make, how you want to make it. Um, and you don't often go back and rehash and rehash and rehash the same program. I mean, of course, everybody's fallen into the trap of nitpicking, but it's still, it's still pretty different from just doing the same music, you know, day in, day out for months. Um, So at this point in the story, you're, you're still a a practicing musician and you're, you're sneaking every spare hour and hurting your back by sitting in a chair forever doing (laughs) programming. Something had to change at some point. Yeah. So, so it was that moment when I realized, okay, obsessed with this and I would really much rather work on making my little hangman game than practice <laughs> Mendelssohn Scherzo for the 9,000th time. Um, so I, I started asking um, software engineers on Facebook that were friends of mine and Facebook, I don't know if it still has this feature, but you were able to search by what, uh, jobs people listed and now people are a little bit more tight-lipped about what they put on the internet but it this is before Cambridge Analytica and all of those things happened um people would put everything about themselves online including their job and where they worked and so I was able to search uh, friends of mine who are engineers or friends of mine who are software engineers or whatever yeah. variations I, I felt felt like coming up with and I realized I, I had maybe a handful of friends who now did this for a living and messaged each of them saying, hi, I'm, you know, I'm a hobbyist for programming and I I really am enjoying it. I'm thinking about considering a career change and I'm wondering what you might look for in a junior developer. What, what would you, what would you want out of a junior developer to join the team and to feel like they were a contributing member um, that was worth hiring and adding to the team. And some, some developers, (laughs) this is where we get into stereotypes. Some of them really were not very helpful at all. Um, <laughs> some of them were kind of, uh, I mean, you in any profession, you meet people who love it and people who just, it's just a job for them and that's fine. Um, and the people who loved it really took the time to write about um, what they did and why they enjoyed it and the, the programming tech that was affiliated with it. I, I talked to a friend who was an embedded engineer. I talked to a few software engineers. Um, talked to some, you know, .NET engineers, people across various stacks and in various levels of excitement about their own job too. Um, Some people, (laughs) the least helpful advice I got was contribute to open source, which Mm. is not a bad thing by itself, but to tell a beginner to do that is absurd. Yeah. (laughs) Because first of all, what is open source? Second of all, what does that even mean? You know, like it's kind of putting the cart before the horse really. Um, but then I, I, you don't have as much to contribute. I mean, exactly. And open source at that time didn't really have the helpful tags that it does now, like good for new contributors or, you know, bug fix or documentation fix or, or any number of, I heard that hangman game you had was really cool and probably would have been (laughs) super good on open source. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Just, you know, add a hangman to any interface. I could have done that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, so, so I started kind of, 
I was still studying. I knew that I still had a lot to learn, but I also was hoping for a little bit of advice from my friends who had been doing this for longer. Like how and to start? Kind of like, like I knew that there was so much to know. And I knew that one that um, just like music programming is not a linear pursuit. Um, and what I mean by that is that sure, there's the basics. You need to know how to to you need to know about the primitives of any language, and kind of like the basic data structure manipulation of any language to to even to really get started. And of course, that that goes without saying. But then after that, there's no. It's kind of like how do you become a writer? There's no like <laughs> you have to do this and that and that. You just keep doing it and you learn what you like and you learn where your strengths and weaknesses lay and you you develop on one or the other and you keep going. And it's kind of like clouds of of development and, and learning and information. And, you know, everybody's going to have different sort of clouds of information that they have and often they'll overlap and sometimes they won't. Um, but I was hoping to kind of get as close to a linear progression from my friends who knew. Um, so I, let's see, I was... Well, that was your data gathering phase. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I, I try to let that phase never end because especially now in the world of web development, it moves so quickly that you're, you're most ad- advantaged by constantly asking yourself what's new, what's, where are trends going and things like that. I, I've but, always uh, been intrigued by people who uh, get really good at something and then think, and this applies to program, program, I'll get that out right yet programming, but uh, like and a lot of other disciplines as well is where you think I'm the best at this and therefore I don't want to try to learn something else. So if you're like the best Ruby programmer in the whole wide world, you don't want to try Perl or whatever, you know, that isn't going to be a, pan, a, a plan for success. No, no, exactly. It's funny, too, because and I fell into the trap as a beginner. You will sometimes see a lot of beginners say okay, I've learned HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. What should I do next? And like, <laughs> it's it's just so silly. You know, it makes you laugh thinking like, no one's really a master. At, I mean, yeah, actually, I bet there are a few masters at all of these, but it's They're it's not so, the ones asking that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's so naive to think that you're, quote, done learning like a thing like JavaScript or... You know, maybe I, I guess ultimately you decide you've learned enough and you want to move on. But to think that you've completed it as if it was a video game and you've reached the end. Kind <laughs> oh, wait, of here's CS6. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, and I ran into that. Yes. When I, when I started my first job. But but before I got there, I, I had the good fortune to ask and ask and ask until I uh, asked a friend of a friend who turned out to be the CTO of a startup in Burbank. Uh, and I'm I'm living in Van Nuys at the time, and uh, he asked to get coffee to sort of talk um, about you know, my programming endeavors so far and how everything was going and what is sort of I later learned to sort of suss out how much did I really know at that point. Huh. Um, and we were talking about Java because Java was the language in that that first iTunes U class, and I kept going studying Java, and um, yeah, I was able to kind of dig a little bit deep on Java and talk about um, boxing and unboxing in various uh, versions of Java and how it treated primitives differently. And um, I, you know, I kind of nerded out specifically about this one aspect of the Java language. And um, he seemed impressed enough that he invited me to come by the office to talk to some engineers there. 
And I thought, great, this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted. I, I want to talk to engineers and ask them about, you know, what they look for in junior developers. So I thought, this is perfect. This is, this is really great. And uh, he says, okay, you know, come by on a, it was a Tuesday at 11 or so, um, bring your laptop. And I thought, okay, all right, maybe I'll get to show off the projects I made. I, I made a lot of toy projects that at this point I moved on to another online course called the Odin Project, which I, re- I recommend to everybody, um, O-D-I-N, and it's free. And what it is, is it's an aggregate of various resources for learning web development. And the, the best thing about it is that it, it doesn't, sort of act like, oh, it has all of the answers. It just takes the best parts of the web um, as taught by other people and brings it into his course so that you're you're learning from tons and tons of different resources that are curated by this one person who now actually went on to build his own um, coding bootcamp. Oh, um, wow. This is, uh, this is open source, too. This is cool. It's, it's wonderful. And it's, it's free and open source. And to this day, when friends of mine say, hey, Eleanor, I heard that you taught yourself how to code online for free. You know, what did you use? I always point them towards this because it's got this really great setup section. You know, the hardest things for beginners are getting their environment set up right. It's so frustrating and it's so joyless. You you know, even for pros, it can be really a big hurdle. Um, But he walks you through all of it and, uh, and you get that out of the way and then you can just do all of his projects. So, so yeah, at this point I had done a handful of those, you know, a good number of them. And I brought my laptop in and, uh, went, went to this office in Burbank. And I I still remember walking upstairs and like, when you have enough computers in a room, there's a smell, like it smells like computers. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, it's not a bad smell. It's just like the combination of heat and plastic, like times, I don't know, 150. And it's just it's like, it smells like a computer office. It does remind me of and, when we took our son to our friend Ron's house and he said, why does Ron's house smell like Radio Shack? Yeah. If you're old exactly. enough to know what Radio Shack was. Oh, no, no. I remember Radio Shack. And I even remember when they were going out of business, they were still overpriced. That really bothered me. Um, but yeah, so so I, I went up to this, this place and uh, I met my friend and he said, uh, how are you feeling? And I was kind of confused by this question. I thought I said, I'm fine. You know, I'm feeling fine. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll see you at the end of the day. <laughs> and, wait, I'll see you at the end of the day. Uh-huh. And I thought we, wait, wait, what? And so he, he led me to uh, a conference room and every hour two developers came in and talked to me about my projects. And I, I had effectively been Trojan horsed into an interview. Oh. I had no idea <laughs> that no idea that I was there for an interview. I mean, I feel like subconsciously, maybe I kind of knew I wore a nice shirt and you know my <laughs> nice jeans. Um, and it's funny for all I, I joke about sort of inept uh, programmers. I myself am somewhat of a tomboy and had felt like you know I, I you know wasn't really the dress super nicely type, but I, I dressed as best I could and I brought my laptop and I, I went into this conference room and, and met with two developers and initially had the attitude of like, oh, you know, tell me about what you do. And and they asked me about what I did. And I, I asked like, do you want to see the projects I made? And and I showed them my projects and I talked about them. And um, one or two of them 
uh, I think for the most part, they just asked me about what I built and the choices I made and why, and if I was going to change this or that, how would I change it? Hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, a couple, some of them were really very, very friendly. One of them, uh, was much more skeptical, sort of seemed like, uh, this person, she didn't really want to be there. She was vaping during my interview, oh. um, which uh, later I, I, I don't know, I, I felt a little, it was a little bit unusual. Um, and uh, I, I did notice that every, almost every single interview was wearing flip flops too. I thought that was really funny. That was something in tech <laughs> that now it's just like, of course, but at the time I thought, wow, there, I remember there's flip flops here in this, in this computer office. What is, this is just so different from what I'm used to. And um, it's funny the things you're noticing. Yeah, I mean, it was just, I don't know, I didn't know what to expect. Um, one one of the interviewers asked me to teach her about music and sort of, I guess it was to sort of suss out like, how am I as a communicator? Anyway, um, the day went on, and I think I had four hours of, of this um, and felt pretty drained by the end of it. Uh, but uh, I, I met with my friend at the end of the day, um, and I have this day marked on my calendar. Uh, I. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I met with my friend and he said, uh, everybody wants you. We'd like to make you an offer. Do you, do you want to, do you want to, we'd like to offer you the position of junior developer at X salary. What do you think? Wow. And I, I, it was, yeah, it felt like a fairy tale for me. I, I just, I, I'm pretty sure my jaw actually dropped and I, I didn't know. I don't know. I, I was, I was really surprised. Um, at the same time, well, plus you, you this, haven't technically made the decision to give up music and start programming as a job yet. And yet you had well, a job. Offer. I, I mean, spiritually, I kind of had, okay. I think when I decided to sort of start asking people about what does it take to be a junior developer? I had already made the decision. I want to go for this. I want to take the leap and, and see if I can do it. And I, I also changed my mindset to like truly studying before and after work so that I treating it very much like music where in music you practice four hours a day, no problem. And so studying three hours a day was a breeze compared to music. Interesting. Well, but there, there's a difference. I, I remember going to just look at dogs because spiritually we had decided to get a dog, but we had to decide mm -hmm. to get a dog that day. And sure, we did, for, yeah. of course, you know, but that's different, right? Yeah, no, you're right. It's it, it's one thing to sort of think, give it a shot, and the other thing to really go ahead and do it. Um, I I knew that music was really not giving back as much as I was giving to it. I felt like I was pouring a lot of energy and effort into it, where I would I'd practice, 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 and then for three months, and then I'd go fly to the city, and then I'd pay for the flights and the hotels, and I'd get there, and I'd I'd play. And I'd, I'd play for maybe eight to 12 minutes and they'd say, thank you. And that was it. Oh, and I'd go geez. home and I'd feel like, wow, I just put so much of my life, excuse me, into this. It really wasn't giving back what I was giving to it. So, so that was a big part of feeling like, okay, I, I want something better than this. Um, and uh, I, I knew that, okay, well, I don't have a degree or anything. I'm not sure if I want to go back to school for this. So I was considering going to the coding boot camp. Um, that was made by the guy who made the Odin school. Cause I thought like, wow, he's, he's obviously a very good curator of content. Uh, boot camps were just starting to be like everywhere. Um, there weren't yet any stories about like fraudulent <laughs> boot camps that came out later. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of like anybody's game. If you've got a boot camp, you know, you can, 
you can make money doing it. But this one seemed like, you know, what I could, from what I could tell, an honest one. So I had interviewed and applied to be part of the next cohort for this boot camp. Um, and on that same day that I got the offer for the job, I, I got invited to the boot camp. And mm. um, there was uh, there was one other uh, there was a Ruby shop also that I had interviewed for over Skype. I remember I was I was uh, in Las Vegas playing with Las Vegas Philharmonic, and I interviewed with them in my hotel room <laughs> um, because that was that was the only time that it would work out. And um, sorry, yeah, I mixed it up. It was the same day that I got the offer from the Ruby shop that I got the offer for uh, the the startup in Burbank, and so I marked it on my calendar as kind of like a personal red letter day of like, yeah, this is the this is my career change day. And, um, <laughs> So, so you start this new job, you accepted the job, I take it. I did. I did. I, I accepted the job, but all, all of my interview quote interview um, that I did was predominantly in the Ruby programming language okay. um, and a little bit of Rails as well. And uh, so I felt great about Ruby uh, and I had previously done Java and one of the, tw- one or two of the toy projects was in JavaScript, but I, I accepted the offer and I was assigned to the front end team. And, and Ruby is they, the back end. Ruby was the back. Well, actually, at this particular company, Pearl was the back end. Oh, so it's um, not even in Ruby. Not even, not even in Ruby. But uh, I, I guess it was. I, looking back, I was extraordinarily lucky about every circumstance around this, uh, this interview. Um, but yeah, they they interviewed me in Ruby and then added me to the JavaScript team. So I spent three or four weeks feverishly doing as much JavaScript as I possibly could. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and joined the front end team, which was at the time, um, they had something like, I guess it was like 14 front end people and then maybe the same amount of back end people. And that was their engineering team. And, uh, so it was sort of like a big pool of us and we were all working on this, this, uh, big recently migrated to react app, um, since it was sort of newer at the time. And by the way, this was around 2015 uh, that I joined them. And uh, it was really tough. I, they, uh, you know, they, they gave me a laptop, which was, you know, part of, it was my work laptop, but I thought, oh my goodness, they, I get my own laptop. And <laughs> they, they gave me a little glass name card that had my name in it. And I, I thought there was some kind of mistake. I'm like, no, nah, there's no way I'm important enough to have my own glass name tag. This, <laughs> There had to be some <laughs> order mistake. And Maybe because you I, wore they, shoes to the interview, you got a glass name tag. Right? <laughs> Maybe. But it's so at the same time, you know, I was wrapping up a concert series or just a, a substitute gig with the Las Vegas, Vegas Philharmonic. And, you know, to put a little context, I, I was playing with them and an email went out saying, oh, you know, Sue is retiring from the Las Vegas Philharmonic after 40 years in the viola section. And we're going to have a potluck for her. So if you could please, please bring a, a item of food to Sue's potluck, we'd appreciate it. And then I start this, this job in Burbank and I get there and they, they're like, here's your laptop. Here's your glass name tag. Here's your hoodie. The margarita machine is over there. Um, <laughs> here you, we all get free memberships to the crunch gym down the street um, we have catered lunch every day. Um, it was just this extraordinary amount of luxury that uh, to this day, I still can't believe. Um, and it, it was really just like changing worlds. Like it's, it's, it was a completely different 
way of thinking about work, of work in general, of work culture. Um, I remember I had a coworker who was talking about he ordered some really expensive speakers, but because they were going to take four days to arrive, he just went out and bought them instead. And <laughs> just like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, it's just a really very different mindset. Um, Sounds like a different and, planet. Uh, almost different planet. It, just coming from, I'm, I've, I'm scraping together as much as I can to sort of get by. I'm at one point even baking my own bread to save money. The, wow. you know, changing life into programming was just such a different, it was, it was, it changed my life. I mean, I, I, no one, I don't know if anyone will ever believe this, but I was prepared for programming to be like a, a kind of 40 K a year profession. Um, <laughs> and, uh, in some parts of the country it is, but, uh, was, was very willing for it to be, you know, about, you know, just, just more than I was making as a musician and was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't, I, I think make an actual living, huh? can make an actual living exactly it can can be comfortable and um so i you know i was able to actually start saving for retirement in my 20s which was was not even an option Miraculous. Um, yeah. as a musician and so it really changed my life and um so yeah was, I, it was this yeah. first job this was your dream job and it was uh, successful and you're still there well uh, <laughs> um i didn't even i i mean to this day i'm not even sure what my job is but I knew that I wanted to keep doing this programming thing all day. And this was a job where I could get to do it. And uh, so in that way, it was a dream come true. I got to basically get paid to keep studying in a, in a way. Um, and uh, it was hard. Um, there were a number of people who thought I shouldn't be there. Um, oh, there were, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. There were a number of people who felt like, oh, she's a friend of so-and-so and that's why. But I mean, I did actually interview a lot of the team and they gave their endorsement. So I knew that wasn't true, but, uh, I, I felt really alone. I remember it was just the front desk girl who would say hello to me every morning. And I was so grateful because she was sometimes Aww. the only person who would talk to me. Um, oh, that's so sad. So it, it felt really isolating at first because, uh, you know, my music friends at this point, they just knew that I stopped doing music. And, and for a lot of them, that was kind of like, you know, leaving that community uh, you realize who are your friends and who are the people who just wanted to network with you. And so a lot of them were sort of like, Oh, I couldn't do what you did. And, and I, and I would sort of, I, you know, lost and people no longer I were interested. Oh, right. Uh, but then, you know, a lot of friends really did come through and one of uh, my most supportive musician friends too, are still really great friends with uh, today. She, she was supporting me, you know, way early on when I was working at the music store and was taking my backpack uh, to work so I could study right after. Uh, I had, a, I did have a lot of supportive friends, um, but at the time, I there were I didn't really have any programming friends. There were uh, not a lot of people right. at the job who thought I should be there. So this is where um, going to meetups actually really made a huge difference for me. Of going going to women who code meetups, actually meeting women who code, which is part of why I came to the meetup where we met because I, I felt like it was so important to get that FaceTime. Um, and and talking to people and seeing them there in front of you who were able to say that I did it. Here I am. And what do you want to know? And how can I help? Um, so that that gave me a lot of um, extra heart when I was starting out. But uh, yeah, so the startup, as many startups do, did not succeed ultimately. Um, they 
they had like this really big contract with a really big company, but uh, they the contract itself wasn't written well enough. So the really big company was able to walk away. Oh. And then our company was left floundering. Like, oh my gosh, what do we do? We didn't account for that to happen. So they tried to change business models to be like a B2B company. And then when that didn't work, um, layoffs began. So they, uh, excuse me, they had three rounds of layoffs. I survived, quote, survived the first round of layoffs. I think really? because I was... So you weren't worthless. Think, yeah, it was actually a good boost for my confidence. But in hindsight, I think it's because I was the least paid of all developers. So <laughs> it's probably cheaper to keep me on board. Um, but, uh, and then the next round of layoffs happened. Um, and uh, I was out of a job, but it wasn't too bad. Um, the same friend who uh, who hired me was actually able to give me an early tip off that it looked like there was going to be another round of layoffs um, the night before. And so I was able to sort of emotionally prepare myself for that before coming to the office, which again was a huge advantage. Yeah. Um, uh, so I was able to sort of steal myself for that and feel like, okay and uh, and, and was able to manage it um that same uh, friend very useful friend was also a recruiter as a hobbyist uh he he's a man of many hats and he uh took a, a good group of us from this company and helped us uh get interviews at places like Ticketmaster um and mm. uh connect us with other recruiters i had i had my first introduction to recruiters um which uh I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on recruiters, but I, I my find father had to part. be one for a while and he hated every minute of doing the job. I think there are some good ones out there, but I think for the most part, it rewards people who, I don't know, why cheat and steal. I mean, like it's, <laughs> it just seems like it can be kind of, it can attract sort of smarmy population of people who aren't always truthful. So I had a hard time, especially as someone with so little experience, I was not the type of person that most recruiters even wanted to bother talking to. Um, so I had to do a lot of my own legwork of, of searching around, um, job hunting, um, unemployment. Also, again, it's, it's, you know, in this time of losing my job, even unemployment wow, there's this thing called unemployment, which I never got as a musician um, <laughs> that I thought was like, this is incredible. I'm getting paid to not work, but I didn't, you know, it, it just, it was this thing that was, again, really helped me out. And uh, so I, I searched around and I, I found an advertising agency in the Culver City area. And um, about a month later, I joined them and um, really enjoyed the visual aspects of advertising. Uh, advertising can attract some of the most incredible artists. Um, that's where I learned to work with animation libraries and oh, make wow. that little square go across the screen. There's a really fun one. If you if you know JavaScript, it's called GreenSock. GreenSock? Yeah, it's, it's a very declarative library, um, really easy interface. For the most part, um, so a little bit about advertising. Um, it used to be very Flash-based. Um, with action script and all of that. And then once the iPhone sort of killed Flash, there was a movement to do it all in JavaScript. Um, and not just JavaScript, but vanilla JavaScript, like no framework of just, just JavaScript by itself, as little as you can possibly make it. And so this library called GreenSock came about. I think I think they might have had a Flash version. They just sort of updated themselves to have a JavaScript version. But it's great. It's wonderful. It's It's a really great way to make kind of quick, small animations, um, 
And so we used that a lot at the agency where we were doing things like banner ads, but we were also doing site builds. Um, sometimes we do site builds for uh, YouTube celebrities. Google was a client frequently. And uh, yeah, it's, I got to it build seems like a lot this got really to work on your, your artistic side of your brain as well as the technical side a little more. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember um, on slow days in the agency, they would give us free reign to kind of just make little toy projects to learn the tech a little bit better. And uh, oh, wow. so I got, I got to make a couple toy projects there that were really fun. Um, and I, I have on my GitHub, but it's, uh, yeah, uh, you know, a, a, a few really artistic kind of fun things to make. Um, and every project, the benefit to advertising too, is that there's always something different. You're always working on something new. Um, and, uh, and that was great. But over time I realized that the standards for code are really low. Um, and they, it makes sense because advertising is disposable and, uh, nothing's going to be around for more than three months. So why, why worry? Why, why invest too much time in making it maintainable? Who cares if you've got a big monolith file and nothing is decomposed and <laughs> and it's kind of a mess because as long as you get it to work, that's fine. So I I found myself feeling like just, you know, as little experience as I had, I, felt like I had this hunch that this isn't good. And when I started asking some probing questions about is this really the right way to do it? I'd get some pushback of like, well, who cares? It works, you know? Uh. Um, and so it was, uh, I regretted it slightly because um, another benefit to working at this agency is that they would do things with like VR, like really early when VR was still cool. And uh, we would get uh, hollow lenses and do AR and, and get to work with some really bleeding edge tech that was kind of like, you know, the advertising space was willing to, be an early adopter and try these fun new things. So, so I did get to develop some of those things and that was really fun, but I knew that if I stayed for a long time, I would, I would gradually fall into this habit of, of writing sloppy code that wasn't maintainable. So, wow. So you had the discipline to look elsewhere because you didn't like their discipline. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I borrow a lot of this from music too, because um, if there's one thing that music rewards, it's scrupulousness. And uh, detail orientation. And so from music, I, I knew, you know, that you know, I valued clean, clean work and uh, clean lines, whether it be in music or in code, and, you know, clear organization and, and things like that. Um, so I kind of had this instinct that this isn't exactly right. So I started interviewing around and I, I found this really great uh, startup in the Marina Del Rey area that uh, I joined after about a year and a half at the advertising agency. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, they, they were great. Um, I, the thing I was sort of vetting them for, really good engineering principles, that a great team. Um, I'm just trying to of... picture this interview process. Well, uh, speak to me about the rigor of your development process. <laughs> Let me see I, your I code can't... first before I decide to work <laughs> for you. I forget how I phrased it, but I, I think, I, I think I knew enough to sort of ask about like what kind of, Oh, you know, the, you know what it was is that the age ad agency didn't do code reviews. And oh. I, I did learn from my first company, the one that went under eventually, I was so lucky with that one in so many ways, but especially with the standards they had there, they had a really good code review process. They had very good organization. 
And I, I learned the most from code reviews. And so I knew like, oh, this is where, you know, the rubber hits the road of, of learning, of getting this feedback from my peers. So, you know, code review is great. This is what I need. So, so you can simply ask sort of, like, what's your code review process? And if they say well, firstly, we don't have one, then yeah. that would be the wrong place. Exactly. Firstly, it was like, do you do code reviews? And I think this was something I asked phone screens anyway. Um, and, you know, what's your philosophy on that? What tech do you use? Um, how do you get around the fact that Ruby has problem scaling? Um, things like that, um, hmm. that I was able to have, you know, it was pretty interesting discussions with several of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, eventually it just, it felt like a cool fit. Um, and, uh, I loved that it was sort of video game adjacent, and, uh, and yeah, and joined, joined that team for a good, uh, again, about a year and a half and, uh, had a great time there. I, I, I learned a lot from them still, you know, think very fondly of the engineers there and I'm friends with many of them. And, uh, yeah, it was there. I was able to start to get more ownership. Um, at the ad agency, I did have projects that I kind of co-owned, but at, uh, versus I was able to take on, you know, really meaty features like, implement our scheduling system, which if you've ever worked with time zones, you realize what an undertaking that that became. Um, But uh, yeah, I I felt like I was really growing there and was able to take on a lot of big things. So how long long from when you got your first programming job to now in the story? It's just like to right three, now. No, let's to, see. to then in the story, that's like three oh, or to four then years. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's like, wow. let's see. So it was 2000, 2015. Um, in the spring of 2015, I started at Connectivity, which was that very first job. And then I guess two years later. Wow. Or that, so, that's pretty um, fast to go from I've never had a job in programming to I need to make sure I work for a company that's got structured engineering <laughs> principles. That's, well, thanks. That's interesting. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, keep in mind too, that before that first job, I was still feverishly studying for a year before that. So I I was really applying myself a year before I got any work. Um, And then after the fact, um, I didn't mention this. I did finally get to make that app that I set out to make at the first job. (laughs) At the first job, we were one of the very early of a framework called React Native, which was uh, is, and still is React, Facebook's React uh, framework for building mobile apps using, uh, using the same syntax as you would for web apps. Um, and so it was really appealing because finally web developers could write for native platforms without needing a native engineer. So it was huge at the time. Um, and uh, we were, that company was the first one of the early, early adopters of it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm out of my element. I'm, I'm kind of barely treading water, water with JavaScript. And then suddenly I've got this framework to learn. So I thought, okay, the best thing I can do is try to build something on my own at home. And so I set out to make, um, I, I did a little soul searching and thought, what do I want to make an app about? And I love animals and I love uh, animal rescue organizations. And so I thought I'd make um, uh, some kind of app that would ultimately it tied into Yelp's API for finding animal rescue shelters um, based on your location. And that's all it did is it, uh, it found oh, wow. rescue shelters and we get you directions there, or you could call them and would show you the reviews. And if you really quickly needed to identify, say, you know, say that you suddenly found 
a puppy behind a trash can or something and you wanted to take it somewhere, but you wanted a shelter rather than uh, another place. place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I learned later too, there's no guarantee that shelters are not kill places, but um, so yeah, it uh, it's just a Yelp API that shows a list of different shelters you can find. And I got to make that as my side project app. And oh, that's um, cool. That became a nice portfolio piece that I was able to use for future interviews and talk about here's how I made it and here's what I learned and here's how I, I tapped into sort of hidden parts of the Yelp API to get high definition images that they don't tell you how to get. But if you just append this little underscore O, you can get the full resolution images and little like hacks that I figured out. Um, Personally, the, and, the, uh, the, I believe that the worst websites on the internet are shelters. They're, they all mm. look like they're from the 1980s with like little dancing footprints on the background. And the photos <laughs> of the dogs are, they're, they're usually like one inch by one inch. And, and they've mm. got, a, it's a picture of the dog in a white room where it's looking straight up at the camera. So it looks like it's in prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ended up choosing the shelter based on the website because it had videos of the dogs. It's like, how hard Ooh. was that? Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not just animal shelter sites, but sites too actually if you Wait, look it, for... it broke up for a second what other kind of oh, sites? Sure. Uh, uh public service sites mm. um sites for any kind of like social services as well um are often like one person made one site in 1993 and it's still the one that they use oh yeah um, as is often the case and so yeah that's that's always sort of been in the back of my mind is like what kind of like volunteer web work can I do for places that just have really awful websites but could benefit from better ones um, yeah I'm not a, a good web developer at all um and I but I know my way around WordPress pretty well and I could make something 1,000 million times better than whatever you have <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah exactly sometimes you just find reluctance for people to even accept free web work because they know how to do it and they've got their system and you know, they just it, convincing people to update their design can actually be much harder than it sounds. Um, right. Here, which is, yeah, one thing that I really value. Yeah. I mean, one thing I really value about uh, working at the companies I've worked at is the continual reinvestment into design. I think a lot of us who are not designers might think, well, like, well, it looks good. And, you know, Hacker News looks fine to me. What's wrong with that? You know, and they, <laughs> they have no standards for design. And they think like, well, it works and I can read it. What are you talking about? Whereas having an actual designer on your team can remind you like trends do change. You know, the, the visual language of something can send a message. You're either current or you're not. Right. And, uh, right. That's been something just, I've just always... having a sidebar makes you look old, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's so great. I, I, I wish, um, I wish I had a personal designer for all of my side projects just to help me really, you know, keep things current and fresh. But, um, yeah, this, been so, quite a, this is quite a story. I, I I thought it would be fun when I first met you. I thought it was even more fun when I read your notes, and it was even more fun again to hear you describe it in real life. This is uh, this is really really cool. Uh, can I? Uh, I'm going to add to the show notes. Maybe you can add it to it. I want to make sure people can see your GitHub. Oh sure, yeah. Before let we me, go, uh, and let me uh, see here, yeah. I, I I tried searching for Eleanor Clarinet, but that didn't work. But uh, that's your Twitter handle, right? That's my Twitter handle, and I'm gonna my uh, GitHub here. My GitHub name is sort of a music reference. Um, in music, there are these things called modes, and my my GitHub name is a is a fake mode. It's Mixo Phrygian. 
And <laughs> that would explain so why I couldn't find it on my own. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's M I X O P H R Y G I A N Mixophrygian. But I'll warn you that I, I don't keep it super up to date. It's it's half like sort of a dumping ground for side projects and half kind of portfolio pieces. Um, lately, it's just been a way for GitHub to email me that all of my dependencies are insecure and out of date. But um, <laughs> like every morning, it's like, hey, this the thing on your side project from four years ago is super duper insecure. You should do something about it. I'm like, oh, so this no. is this is a tool you use to make sure your Wi-Fi is working. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's okay, that's exactly. hilarious. Well, uh, you do have your Etch-A-Sketch from your Odin project. So at the very least, we can see that, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I think there might be. I mean, gosh, now that I'm looking at these, these are all really super old, but happy to share it for anybody who wants to see and read. Um, I think there's a fun one that I got to do at the advertising agency. Let me see if the spotlight one. There's one where I got to build a really cool spotlight effect. Uh, oh, and the Nyan Cat game is one I got to build when I was learning animation. Um, and there's a link to that in the README. But uh, yeah. Well, very good. Well, this is really, really fun having you on the show. I, I appreciate the time you spent putting together the notes. And uh, I love this whole story. And we're going to be friends forever now. Just so oh, you know. thanks. Oh, I'm really glad. <laughs> All right. Nice talking to you, Eleanor. Thanks, Allison. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSillaCastaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla castaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.